Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Of course, a new year to the Australian MMA podcast. Today's guest is the legendary Brian Ebersole. Now, he fought, I think, 11 times in the UFC, 10 times in the UFC across 11 years. He fought as far back as... It was UFC 28 or UFC 33. Uh, he's an American that uh, made his way over to Australia, uh, and he's become a really like a, an adopted pioneer uh, of the country. Now he is uh, connected with Train Alter. Now, if you don't know what Alter is, similar to the old oh no, it is the the old Wimp to Warrior, uh, which we've had Richie Walsh, uh, another former UFC fighter uh, who's heavily involved with Train Alter. Now Brian Ebersole helping them out. And uh, he's doing a wrestling seminar Saturday, January 20th, uh, 2 to 4 p.m. at UFA Martial Arts Academy uh, in Penrith. Uh, so Brian Abersole will be doing some wrestling for MMA there. So we've got him on the show to chat about that. But, of course, we spend about like two minutes on that because that's what I do. That's how I drag the stars in for you guys and we chat about everything else. We talk about... Of course, his legendary UFC career, how it all started, uh, how the sport has grown. He's had over 70 fights uh, in his 20-year, or at least, yeah, 20-odd-year career. Uh, we chat about some of his uh, better moments, some of his worst. Um, the impact he had on Australian MMA, um, of course, traveled around the country, but spent a lot of time in Perth, Western Australia, where I'm based. Um, was at Fitness and Fight Center in Northbridge, which had just some absolute legends of combat sports. Daniel Dawson uh, was there teaching a lot of the striking. Steve Kennedy, who fought uh, in the UFC. Isaac Tisdale, uh, who ended up becoming the Eternal MMA lightweight champion. Uh, Romel Luestro, who ended up being the head coach at uh, Luestro Combat Academy. You might remember him. Uh, of course, Quillen Southkild, who's the Eternal MMA lightweight champion. Cody Haddon, who's the interim bantamweight champion of Hex. So, I mean, some great talent coming out of there. And, and Brian Ebersole talks about there were these legendary sessions, which we'll go into, but where he, uh, they were like tryouts, like you see at Tiger Muay Thai and, and stuff in Thailand, but it was literally to break people, like the old Lions Den with Frank Shamrock and... Uh, all those guys back in the day, Pat Militich. So Brian talks about that and uh, how he's sort of softened over the years and, of course, how he thinks the sport uh, can get better. Uh, and most importantly, though, like I said, we do touch on the new beginners getting into the sport. So if you're a hardcore fan or a casual fan, uh, you're going to absolutely... Or if you're not even a fan of mixed martial arts, you're going to love this chat with an absolute MMA pioneer and legend to this country. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen... Brian Ebersole. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome my guest, Mr. Brian Ebersole, the legend. Welcome. Oh, a legend. I'm getting I'm getting old, huh? Well I must be stories must be getting grander the older I get. <laughs> well, you you get this weird treasure to Australia where you're an American but not really. Have you always felt that? Uh, I definitely embrace the Amer Australian <laughs> thing. You know what I mean? I think there's a. Uh, there's something goofy inside me that resonates with both countries. I'd say for a while, alcohol was probably a good part to do with that as well. So, yeah, I mean, I didn't go to summer nats or anything, but I can definitely, definitely drink a beer with you guys. What a what a very local reference. That, that's, that's, that's how you become Australian. Are Australians uh, deemed as, as crazy as we think we are? The hard part is when I was young, like, we never heard about Australia. <laughs> it wasn't a thing. I don't know if flights got cheaper. 
or what the story is, but there's a lot more like Australia, America, like stories and like anecdotal evidence and you know, people just telling me they visited here and there uh, than I ever heard about, you know, coming up. So it wasn't until I came here like early on, I didn't know what to expect other than the movie. So there are some stereotypes like pimp on the Barbie and big knives and crocodiles and, and all the rest, but we didn't have a real good grasp. I mean, I didn't know what Thailand was mm. for a long time. Like it was martial arts that opened up all this to me being a, landlocked you know middle of the u.s kind of kid yeah that's very um that's very american of you uh to not know of any other countries <laughs> i feel i feel like i i, cool. I do like, feel like like for the credit though when we often when we send our country you guys go to war and we're like oh yeah we're coming it's like the equivalent of giving your friend a pocket knife in a gang fight we're like here you go it's like tiny tim showed up at your hip <laughs> yeah yeah. Yeah. But I guess maybe I was for a long time I was too young to even read those stories. Like I didn't I was a history major in college and I didn't gather some of that stuff until I was much older, you know? So um yeah, interesting like obviously that alliance being very strong. Now I know that. I read the articles and I see the history of it. But back then it wasn't something talked about. It was us in Britain somehow overcoming our past to be <laughs> the ruler of Team America, at least with Britain's help. America is very like a very patriotic sort of place. Uh, how do your American friends uh, view your sort of Australian residency now? Uh, probably with like a little bit of, I'm glad it worked out for him. <laughs> I was the nutty kid that was getting punched in the face for a living, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I, I was around a lot better wrestlers than myself coming up. So to be the one that kind of took the MMA thing like full tilt as well. I think a lot of guys are just kind of like good on you. I mean, you, you're now you're now doing you know you're wrestling for MMA. You've got a seminar coming up January twentieth, uh, two to four PM at UFA Martial Arts Academy. Four train Alta, of course. Uh, Richie Walsh, a uh, big part of that. How did you become a part of of Train Alta? How did you rattle off that script better than me? And I work for Alta. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to come in handy. Um, no, Walsh was um, was instrumental. I mean, I trained with Richie way back. You know, when we were young and handsome mm. and both of us were near the 80 kilo mark <laughs> uh he's doing well to hold it mind you <laughs> but he was instrumental uh in getting me up there I, I chatted with him jokingly once about getting an office job and i type really fast and, da, 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 and then that turned into a come on up and meet everyone that turned into a job offer so um so here i am working with them and you know we want to we want to like how do you say give an experience worthy of like people staying in the sport. That makes sense. So obviously Alta is the old winter warrior and it's all about getting people through their first fight camp, you know, doing a 20 week fight camp, whether it's like a development day thing and you take it as a launching pad or it's more of a bucket list thing, right? It's something you want to do, but all the stuff outside of that 20 week camp as well. Like I know guys that train three, four five years almost a purple belt before they had like a really cool seminar that they would brag about because they trained at just their local gym, you know, and the world these days, globalization, all that stuff is making trade, making business, making other stuff. So open, making information. So open. Um, we kind of want to come back off the YouTube platform and do it back in person. Just say, look, like we're happy to bring really talented people 
at not gouging prices. Like we're doing a $19 membership, mm-hmm. right? People came and saw last month, Ben Askren for 19 bucks. November was Jeff Chan. January is May. So the guys that did the Jeff, Jeff Chan, some of them were at Ben Askren. Some should be at me as well. And they just have that rolling monthly membership, right? Almost like a globetrotter MMA thing. So you get your, your seminar every month, hopefully throughout 2024. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting on the mats with, again, some some different people. Like that was the fun part for me when I was younger, was doing seminars, mm. being able to meet different groups of people and everyone's excited to have you. And, you know, wrestling's, you know, the big thing in Australia that we don't have. So anytime mm. they can get a thirst for it, which I obviously made a bit of a niche, you know, for myself in that. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm just looking forward to getting, getting on the mat with, with the whole stack of people I haven't met yet. And, um, just making an impression. Is it hard for you? I mean, you, you've, you've had 70, I think official fights. I'm sure there's a few like Indian casino fights in there as well. Uh, but how do you take all those fights and talk to someone who really has been training for like a month? Sometimes condescendingly, but it's on accident. I swear. (laughs) No, usually like I tell these guys like they're complicating things. Like you can only work from where you understand. And if I was thinking about this even today, like if all you understand is I don't want to get hit, so it's a flinch, just know that you're going to do that and try to work off the back end. Like all these guys are trying to make like perfect movements and things like that. And I'm like, if you're still in a position where your nature is going to take over anything you've trained, you've got to make the nature part primary and then bolt onto that. You know, if I'm turning and flinching and like turn that into a shoulder roll instead of trying to be like Mayweather with like sniper's uh-huh. eyes, and, you know, and then just turn your movement into that moment and then the counter or that moment and then exit and get your eyes back on if that's your constitution. So I try to tell these guys like, we're no better than you. We just have a lot more understanding of our own habits and you guys complicate things being so new because you want to have this mastery that you can't quite have yet so you'll you you try to force it you try to understand it try to grind your brain on it i'm like you're gonna flinch and you're gonna run or you're gonna flinch and you're gonna shoot or you're gonna flinch and you hit him back can we just can we just do that like you've got a great way of, of already. I mean, here I was thinking I was this great reacting Anderson silver counter striker when actually I'm flinching the whole time. So that's great to know. Are you saying that almost like when you would train a fighter, you don't make them into a mold of what you want. They kind of already have their type of fighting within them. Even if, even if I did try to mold someone like on intentionally because it's really not my goal i do want people to fight with the natural abilities they have like the five foot two guy should fight like six four guy and i'm in the middle at six foot so i can kind of relate to being the taller guy sometimes and relate to being the shorter guy others and we work off those stereotypes um but you've got to make your mind up as to what strategy you're willing to play with like do you want to go out there and play like it's call of duty and you know you have to like Go slow, use the blocks, use the covers, strafe across, hit your roll, pop up a couple shots and pop down and be careful about it. Or are you going to go like you're doing like a, you know, a run on Fortnite? Just <laughs> and then dancing and celebrating every time you kill someone, you know, like 
definitely different ways to play. Like when you watch people play these video games, you can almost imagine how they would strategize as a fight as well. You know, there's some super reckless and some super cautious and some that are that really nice balance in between. So those guys pick the techniques that suit them best and the style that suits them best. Our job is just to expose them to all that stuff in a manner that allows them to make educated choices. And what's the type of uh, techniques, situations you go through in the seminar? Now, we all know how seminars sort of go. At, uh, you can sometimes get the the guy that gives you everything he's ever learned his entire career, or you get the guy that tells you how to do a single leg that you can learn in like a, a basic MMA school, but maybe how to, how to craft it. What's your way of going uh, about, about teaching? Um, I mean, for this one, uh, I've, got a, I've got a pretty good set outline, um, but I have taught like – a three hour seminar and realized I'm two hours in and we've only done double leg, double leg variations, problem solving from failed double leg and things like that. So, um, I'll have to be a bit more conscious this time. I promised everyone we're going to do a wrestling for MMA. So we'll do a little bit of clinch takedown work and defending yourself from the clinch from being dominated. Then we're going to do some pin punch and pass or pass and punch. Like I said, kind of depends on your constitution, which one of those suits you best. You know, what's your ultimate goal? How do you really see your, yourself winning a fight? Um, I've got guys that aren't great at submissions, but get such good positions they can get themselves um, into them. And if that doesn't pan out because the other guy's tough, it's they're very much ground and pound type guys. So, good night, daughter. <laughs> I love I go straight from like ground and pound to like waving off my one-year-old. Believe <laughs> that's, the, uh, that's the best way to do it. Um, have you... Kid. Have you found a weird transition in from being a bloodthirsty UFC fighter to a father and um, budding coach to people just starting out? I found it easier than I thought. Like I've always been a little soft-hearted and I think decent deep down, but this was easier than I expected. Like there's obviously the challenges, like you still got to control your mood. You got to control your tone, da, 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 da. but like, I couldn't compete when I had kids. I told my wife that, like I had that inkling. There was no way I was sticking back to do any nasty Volkanovsky looking pull up, sprawl, punch, medicine ball, you know, conditioning at eight thirty nine, nine thirty at night. When I knew I just wanted to be home with my kid, mm. you know, there's no way I was going to get up at certain hours of the day and be away from them. Some of these guys that travel for fight camps and like, you know, seclude themselves almost like i i definitely couldn't imagine that with with children so um yeah there's definitely a big pull to like being a dad and finding finding balance between work life and being a dad definitely um an interesting challenge but i think if if people prioritize their family they'll make they'll make that happen was your career worth it like when you look back, I mean, you had, like we said, uh, hundreds of fights. Um, you now are a family man and whatnot. But did the career go kind of where you thought it would? Are you happy that you sort of you took that journey from day one? Gosh, I could take that an answer that a million different ways. Um, overall, yeah. I sit here without like CTE. I sit here without being knocked out. Truly, like major concern, like. I didn't have to think about it because it never happened though, you know? So like, it's heart wrenching watching other guys like so eager to play. And then they do have a couple touches and you do have a few concussions and worries, you know, and you, you see the heartbreak, like when it's 
time to retire. Or you see the heartbreak even for people that, you know, look at like a Tony Ferguson or a Leonard Garcia or some of these guys that have had, had the wars and their fans want these guys to hang it up. And they get almost emotional whether they're talking or writing or posting um, about some of these guys. So personally, like making it through that way, yes, super happy. Um, did it come with its other issues? Yeah, like I, I don't have a resume where an office job is like super easy or a trade or anything like that to fall back on. So um, I've definitely tied myself to this sport. Thankfully, I have a decent enough resume to go, I can make it in this sport though. You know, like I should be able to coach. I should be able to, you know, help promote uh, events, things like that. Um, and that's panned out really well. That was something I thought I would end up doing and I'm doing it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I love to be like replacing Joe Rogan and whatnot. Would that be cool? That would have been a, a neat, a neat outlet. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd have to say personally, I've come up well. Is that the case for a lot of guys? I mean, me and Sean Strickland can probably talk for 20 or 30 minutes on that subject after his recent, you know, kind of chats to tell parents like, don't push it to MMA. This, this is crazy man sport. Cause there's a, there's not a, there's not a middle class in MMA. Are there any regrets? Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing that sticks out in particular, but it's like, you, I was almost directionless for a while, just following the sport. You know what I mean? Like I just had my surfboard and I was ready to go play and then ended up where I was like, and it's worked out really cool. But on the other end, like some people really like to take control of their own destiny and like put themselves in positions. I just felt like I kind of blew with the wind, you know? So at certain points, do I wish I would have like taken the sails down a little bit, sat and planned, made a decision and then pointed a direction? Absolutely. You know, are there fights that I would have rather have said no to someone that never said no to a fight? Absolutely. And whether that was in the planning stages before I signed a contract or a week before the fight when I'm in a swimming pool to finish my fight camp because I can't stand upright in general anyway, when my back finally went, um, there are definitely some some spots I would have rather have went against my own nature, just point my, point my compass the way I want to go instead of just following and doing what I think I need to do. And how have you found the sport? Uh, from when you debuted to to now, how how have you found it to to have grown? Um, like debuted as in like two thousand. Yeah, yeah. Oh gosh, <laughs> it's wild when I go. I just went back home for Alta in September and visited a whole bunch of Chicagoland area gyms um, and a, a promoter or two. And the guy that I had my first fight for still runs a show, and he's selling out a 2000 person venue like on the outskirts of Chicago um, four times a year. So the crowd has grown considerably. He probably had a thousand man venue before when I fought, um, but everything for him, it's like going back into a time capsule, going back um, to total fight challenge. The poster from 2000 doesn't look different than the one now other than the fact it's on facebook twitter social media but the actual print poster wouldn't if um so he's doing things very similar you got guys like anthony pettis now 
he, because of the history of the sport, he can go back into the archives of the sport. He's plucking two or three guys for each show, and he's selling like a $500 meet Cain Velasquez, meet Nick Diaz backstage fight ticket. There are people that are coming and meeting them and not sitting in their seats almost the whole night and then watch maybe the main event or they'll meet him and leave. They're spending a couple hundred bucks just to go meet these guys as opposed to sitting and watching seven, eight, nine, ten fights on a night. So it's 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 been packaged differently than it was back in the day. Now it's one of the ones where you'd have to know someone to go up to the local pub or the local, you know, RSL to watch to watch someone where back in the day you'd go just because it was a live event in your area. Mm. You know, there's there's that different pressure now on like promoters and and even athletes to, to actually put bums in seats. Do you have any advice for younger fighters? Stop sparring so much and stop sparring so hard. Maybe not even so much. If you're in a good if you're in a good gym and sparring feels like a good, decent jujitsu day or a good, decent wrestling-ish day, not so bad then. But if you guys are getting pumped and cracked and having headaches, hurting your feet, kicking elbows and things like that, you're just going too hard. You can find out that you missed the opening to that shot without breaking your foot on the elbow. You can realize that defensive assignment without having your mouthpiece knocked out. It's funny because you've got you've got this great approach. Obviously, like, you know, you had 70-odd fights. You can still string a sentence together. So what you said has made sense immensely. But if you're in Australia, all you have ever heard coming up through mixed martial arts is, like, these legendary, like, Brian Ebersole, like, fighter tryouts in in fitness and fight center in northbridge back in the day like what like what what is where did so can you tell us some stories from 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 back then and and maybe has your approach changed or is it just it there's more details in that way of attacking it so when i was back there i was very very much in the thrust of it still trying to get to the ufc um and the coaching I guess philosophy back then um, was a little bit more like show these guys what it's really like because they hadn't done a single sport. They hadn't wrestled. They hadn't boxed. They hadn't done jujitsu until they were a blue belt. So it was it was really fresh, and they had really, really athletic guys. So we pushed and we played. We, we positionally sparred a lot. Um, we had a little bit less open sparring, at least under my direction, maybe – I didn't pay attention to every boxing class they had because someone else was running that. You know, we had Daniel Dawson there doing boxing and, and Muay Thai as well. Um, so maybe I didn't quite notice how often they were they were banging, for lack of a better term. Um, but in my room, we played like rough games. You know, we played rugby on our knees. We'd have to try to score like a medicine ball at the other end of the room, you know? And it was just a bunch of mini wrestles and contact for the guys. Um, but that's one I know some of the guys will bring up. Like they probably have memories of like big serious games and being triple teamed and all sorts of stuff, you know, from their perspective. Um, the tryout thing kind of came because all these guys kept wanting to fight, wanting to fight, wanting to. And I said, do you really want to or you'd want to be a bully? I'm like, you guys don't get it. And I'm like, when it comes down to like someone in your face and you maybe want to quit, I need to at least know like where you're at. 
and you need to know before you keep talking because all these 19 year olds full of it some you know had a, a brown belt hadn't fought yet full of it and i'm like but you're not going to get an easy fight you're a brown belt you're going to get like a really good striker you're going to get like wes capper <laughs> is your debut like what there's no other you know what i mean so you better be ready so we actually did like a, a tryout and for me it wasn't a tryout it was just i'll push you until you break because you need to know and you want to know and well, let's just do it. So we shut the gym down and had everyone come in at a certain time. We had two different groups, treadmills and workouts. And then we, whoever made it got to the mat. And then once we got to the mat, we just, just rounds of just bashing people. And when are you done? When are you done? And one man made it through all the way, no quit. And I was like, well, you're the last one standing. I still gave you an extra round and you made it through that. And you're ready for double overtime. Well, tryouts over. There's nothing else to do. So yeah, we we basically just worked through, I think sixteen guys or something, to the last one quit, which he did. So yeah, we had a fun day. Nowadays, would I do that? Yeah, if I had my own place, I might do something like that. But on a day to day basis, I think these guys are out training so much now because they think they need to, and some of them still get to live with mom and they have the time to. That I don't really want to be the one responsible for overdoing. Back then, I guess I had maybe a bit more control. I knew exactly where they were training, except, you know, some of the guys might sneak in, like I said, that extra sparring session mm. during a week. Might sneak off and, and go across the room and box. But um yeah, it was definitely it was definitely an interesting group of guys back then and a couple of them have went on to do some really cool things. And uh can you remember who who made it to the very end? I don't like him very much. I don't even want to mention his name. Gosh. And you wouldn't you wouldn't know where he ended up being the coach of the current eternal lightweight champ. I don't know. I don't know where he got any of these coaching ideas from. He must have stolen from me. He and I have a big beef. Romelu Listro, I'm in, I'm coming for you. <laughs> that's that's what I love about it. Is is basically anyone who turned into anything, especially in, in Western Australia and mixed martial arts could be tied back to you at, at some point. Romelu Estro, Steve Kennedy went on to great things. Uh, Isaac Tisdall, all these sorts of guys. That's actually my cousin. Um, and I just yeah. wrote him today. So yeah. yeah. We've had our, how cool. Yeah. <laughs> and you're the reason I met him. That's why he yeah. came out, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Now is that, do you take a great sort of pride in that? The fact that like, although the sport has grown immensely, you had your time in the UFC, you know what I mean? The the, the sort of casuals and that they move on, but in Australian MMA, you're still spoken about so highly. I look at, I try to look at things in like a, a just a normal sport context. Like we talk about fighting and people get so emotionally drained after a loss. It's almost like, they choose between quitting the sport and coming back with a renewed fire. And I look at basketball and I'm like, if you lost a game of basketball, 82 to 77, you'd probably be still like celebrating some alley-oops and some layups and a couple steals and looking at your stat sheet. You'd process the whole thing so differently than you do this MMA thing. Anything I've done in MMA, I look like it's another sport. So I don't talk about it like it's, greater than or less than you know what i mean i definitely tell people like it wasn't anything noble i did i was punching people and wrestling people being somewhat violent for a living you know what i mean um 
accomplishment wise though, like just take the good with the bad. Like I'm super proud of like what the kids did, but because they did it, not because I was their coach. Like, is it fun? Yeah. But I'm going to coach kids regardless. Like I I'm proud that these guys have become good dads. Right. I'm proud that they've softened up a little bit and like speak to their misses with a bit more respect <laughs> despite Rumel's Instagram and Facebook. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, like being around some of these guys when they're old, knowing that they're, they're okay. And that the sport at the time they needed to help them. Cause really I think the sport's just helping you get from one chapter of your life to another. And even during that chapter, is it the main part? You know, I didn't keep playing the sport because I was making money from the sport. That's for sure. Mm. You know what I mean? So was it even the main part of my life during that time? Felt like it, but yeah, it's interesting to uh, to kind of look back and think about it in those terms. The Shannon Rich fight, the alleged fixing or ha- having him hang around longer than was uh, there was kind of some dubious activities that the commission uh, presumed. Uh, what was the reality of that? So I'm going to lay context because context matters, right? The first time I met this gentleman, he was in a locker room. And he was the only one that had this room. But I tell you, it was a broom closet, but it had his photo on it, like like a promo photo, like imagine WWE, right? So he's in like a feather boa and this and that and the glasses and the mohawk and blonde hair and just slapped against the door. And it's like Shannon Rich's locker room. But like you look in there and it's like old audio visual equipment, like a mop bucket and a mirror and just a bit of space. Whatever makes you feel special, I guess. But that was the first time meeting him and he was flown out meant to be the big deal. And he lost in the first round quickly. So second time I meet this guy, I'd already moved to California and I'm fighting him down in Mexico. Now, every time we went to Mexico, we'd always show up a couple days early and they would parade us around town to like small businesses and things like that and do little local events, almost like in Thailand, how you hear about the real fights tonight, tonight. (laughs) Muay Thai, boxing, Petong Stadium, you know, and they have the trucks. We were doing that, like, in real life for these promoters. But they've flown us to Mexico, and they're paying us a couple hundred bucks, maybe a thousand to fight. So, okay. So we're sitting at, like, an Outback Steakhouse after doing some of this and being fed for the evening before we get shuttled back to the hotel um, and finally got to, like, shake his hand and say, hey, and the first thing he does is go into a thing about how he's had like 16 losses in a row. And I'm like, I'm fighting you like in 19 hours, <laughs> 20 hours, but okay. And I'm like a bit with AKA and I'm a bit nervous. It's one of my first fights out there. The guy had a million fights and just got to stay away from a few certain things. Right. First round, I go knee on belly and he darn near, bleh, he darn near, heel hooked me from there like he grabbed it snatched on it like a catch wrestling thing thankfully it wasn't like you know craig jones like snaking yeah. on my leg and e-line and all that stuff but it was a bit of a scare so i finished him in that fight in the promoter fun fun story let it go after he verbally tapped twice so he made him like verbally tap three times because he hadn't been hurt yet but he fought the next day in texas 
two hours away by car. So that's who we were dealing with. Now, coming to this whole California thing, I had a fight contract with the San Jose Razor Claws, which is Frank Shamrock's team, the IFL, which was like Militich's team in Iowa, Henzo's team in New York, Boss had a team in L.A., Ken Shamrock had a team, right? So they're trying to do this city versus city thing. My first fight was going to be up in Canada against Carlos Newton's team, another UFC veteran. But I had this fight booked a long time before that came into play. So I kept that fight. Went up there. On two weeks' notice, they changed my opponent from a young guy to Shannon Rich. So I'd already fought Shannon. Context given, like we were in a pretty friendly, carefree environment down in Mexico. His first initial chat didn't seem to be all that serious, telling me he'd lost that many fights in a row. And then obviously I'm getting more educated in this sport. Moving out to California, taking it seriously, had 30 fights under my belt. And he's obviously losing a lot of fights and winning one every now and again. So I wasn't too worried about this. Like, okay, payday, have fun, move on to this IFL thing, good contract, here we go. Fight comes around, weigh in, chat, how you going, good to see you, thanks for taking the fight on short notice, all that stuff, right? Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. We head back in the car to San Jose, he goes to a hotel. Next day, fight comes, I have a female bodybuilder that we had met through like Jay Cutler and a sponsor that Frank had for supplements right up the road from us. They had like a, like an open day. So Frank had Matt's and his whole team there, of which I was on. And then Jay Cutler and a female bodybuilder had like a table together. So we ended up having a laugh about walkouts and this and that and how funny would that be? And we were able to make it happen. So we're in San Francisco, huge, huge, like gay community up there. And um, she walked me out in a dress in high heels. And I had like a hoodie on and came out to freak on a leash. And I had a beard and we had a proper rampage checks and straight from Bunnings three meter chain around my neck. And she's like dragging me out. And I'm trying to not walk out like on a proper runway. Like I'm trying to not walk out and she's yanking me <laughs> from the cheap sheets from the cheap seat. Probably look like a man. So <laughs> probably look like I already started with this weird dude in a dress, like dragging me to the K the commission would have just been shaking their heads. Like what is going on? So then we get out there and I dance and I play and before any initial engagement, you know, I backed up to the cage and done this to him. Yeah. And he stayed his ground and stayed in the middle. So I ran out and cartwheeled and da, 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 took his back, ripped his head up, probably under the chin a little bit, but more of the arch. And he screamed and the ref stopped it and tapped. And I got suspended like on the way out of the cage. Wow. Like, the community didn't even let me out of the cage, but a minute into the fight, I'm told they were in the corner telling Frank, he better start getting serious. What's he doing in there? Blah, blah, blah. So I don't know how they would have handled, and I'm not Muhammad Ali, but I don't know how they would have handled like some of these other guys, like clowning a little bit. You know, you, you got Dominic Cruz out there dancing. You got Garbrandt dancing at him. You got Silva putting himself against the cage with Bonner, Forrest Griffin, and others. John Jones coming out on hands and knees. You know, like, I didn't think I was doing anything too crazy, but I suffered for it a little bit, but it landed me here. 
so it's just show biting. Just just a little bit of show biting. Uh, so where's the he carried him into the third round for betting purposes or entertainment? There's no betting. None of that stuff was going on. So uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, mate, well, before I let you go, we got three minutes, and instead of just bringing you back um, right away, I'll let you go within two and a half minutes. If you can just tell me right now, after it's all said and done, how does Brian Ebersole want to be remembered in mixed martial arts? Just remembered is good enough for me, honestly, Mitchell. Just remembered. And boy, you are. Mr. Brian Ebersole, an absolute legend, not just in Australia, in mixed martial arts in general. Thank you so much for your time, and hopefully we can have you back and, and chat again sometime. Anytime. Appreciate you, Mitchell. 